Hello, my name is Kristen Smith, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 9 of the Sight Black Women Podcast. It's August 19th, 2019. Just a little over a week ago, on August 11th, I had the pleasure of participating in a Sight Black Women panel at the American Sociological Meeting in New York. The panel was organized by Dr. Whitney Pirtle of the University of California, Merced, and panelists included myself, Kristen Smith, from the University of Texas at Austin, Dr. Crystal Fleming of SUNY Stony Brook, Dr. Tressie McMillan-Cottom of Virginia Commonwealth University, and Dr. Zakia Luna of the University of California, Santa Barbara. This was a very momentous occasion. Whitney Pirtle organized this panel as a follow-up to a site Black Women intervention that she staged at last year's ASA meeting. In Philadelphia, she organized a day when she asked everyone at the conference to wear their Sight Black Women t-shirts to honor the myriad but often overlooked contributions of Black women sociologists. The intervention was a complete success and sparked a critical set of conversations. In response, Whitney decided to organize a panel for this year's conference to keep the discussion going. The panel was moving. The room was packed with standing room only. People were sitting on the floors along the walls. Whitney began by telling her story from last year's conference. The conversation then moved to me telling my story behind founding site Black Women. Next, it was Crystal Fleming. She moved us to tears when she asked all Black women in the room to stand up and be recognized, a gesture that we rarely get in these spaces. Tressie McMillan-Cottom kept the momentum going. She engaged us with a discussion of the ways that our knowledge and worth as Black women are often erased in spaces like ASA. Finally, Zakia Luna discussed her collaboration with Whitney Pirtle to edit the new anthology Black Feminist Sociology, Perspectives and Practice, which is forthcoming with Rutledge Press. Our conversation was healing and inspiring, so I'm excited to be able to bring you the recording of our session in its entirety for this podcast episode. The audio begins with Whitney Pirtle's remarks. Unfortunately, these were cut off a bit in the recording, so I apologize in advance for that inconvenience. After Whitney speaks, we move into my remarks, followed by Crystal Fleming, Tressie McMillan-Cottom, and finally, Zakia Luna. I hope you enjoyed this dialogue as much as we did. It was really an energizing morning that was definitely historic. Thank you again for all of your support and enjoy the episode. The year that Patricia Hill Collins was president of ASA as the first black woman president. And I remember filling into that room and hearing her talk and feeling a little bit better then. Um, but even she said she felt in her remarks, she said she remembered how she felt as a graduate student and feeling alienated um, and feeling like an outsider within. Um, and so I was thinking about as I was preparing for ASA last year, thinking about kind of the growth that I've experienced as a professional sociologist um, and that the conference has experienced, um, I would just, I was, well, thinking about all of those things and decided to tweet out, as I've been more and more active on Twitter, that I was going to buy a Sight Black Women t-shirt and wear it to the conference. And for me, that was a little bit bold because... Um, I often try to dress up when I'm being professional, so wearing a t-shirt, but also just wearing a t-shirt that says Sight Black Women and what that might mean. And so I tweeted that out and a bunch of people really um, amplified that. 
Um, and so all of a sudden we had this mini movement about wearing Sight Black Women t-shirts on the same day at ASA. And Philly came around and it happened. And um, it coincided with the final day of the Association of Black Sociologists where Patricia Hill Collins had her author meets legacy session where she centered black women um, on the conference theme called the New Black Sociologists. And it happened the same time that we were talking about um, uh, feeling race at ASA. And it happened in Philly, the city where Du Bois taught us so much about sociology. And it was the first ASA that I went to that I actually did feel like it was a space for us. And um, I know people talk about t-shirts, what does that mean? Or what does it just mean to cite black women? But I think it means much more. And that's why I wanted to have this panel to have a conversation around, around that, around um, citational practices, around what it means to be an outsider within, how like the progress we have made um, and the progress we have yet to be made. Um, and so I was so excited that the section on race and ethnicity um, would host this session. I sent an email out to some of the people who I thought, who would I want to talk about Sight Black Women? And everyone said yes immediately. So I was so excited. Um, we have a guest of honor, Kristen A. Smith, who is the founder of Sight Black Women. So she's going to start us off. Um, and other people are talking about you know, various things. And I will introduce each speaker. Um, but the, one of the things that I asked the panelists to talk, um, I gave a set of questions in the abstract and for the panelists to talk about, but I want to say them again for you all so we can all be thinking about those things. Um, so when we're talking about sight black women, like what does it mean? Who belongs in the canon of black women sociologists? Who are the contemporary innovators? Who is included or who is excluded when we say black women? What guides are gatekeeping practices in publishing, and how can we make them more inclusive and equitable? What might we lose if we don't listen to black women today? How might we make this symbolic gesture of sight black women into something more praxis-oriented? Beyond citing black women, how can we further support black women in our discipline and the academy? So to reiterate, the session's focus is on centering and celebrating black women in the academy and in sociology. Um, we invite everyone who would like to think about what it means to do this, to be a part of this space and follow epistemology like the one Patricia Hill Collins recommends, focused on sharing, dialogue, and respect. And before I introduce the panelists, I want to leave you with one more thing to think about. And this is in honor of um, the GOAT, or greatest of all time, Toni Morrison, who unequivocally and unapologetically centered black women in her work. And in a letter to us in a knowing so deep, she wrote, Quote, what doesn't love you has trivialized itself and must answer for that. And anyone who does not know your history doesn't know their own and must answer for that too. So thank you all again for being here and let's give a warm welcome. To the first up is Dr. Kristen A. Smith, who is a associate professor at UT Austin and founder, creator, innovator of Sight Black Women. First, let me just say thank you for packing the room this morning. It means a lot. Um, I'm a really, I'm a, you know, I'm an anthropologist, and so any anything that I do that are unseemly, just blame it on my field. Um, <laughs> we tend to get, we tend to be unruly, and we tend to get emotional. And so I'm going to try not to get emotional because it really is. Um, 
Say Black Women is a labor of love and it's very personal to me. Um, and so to see so many people support it is, is, is beautiful. Um, knowing that this is how I am, I wrote my, I wrote my, uh, my stuff down. Um, so I'm gonna read and I wanna apologize for that ahead of time. Usually I like to just talk and chat with people, but I knew I wasn't gonna be able to remain in my time. And so I wanted to be sure um, to do that. And I'm also gonna just make sure that we're recording um, from time to time, because I don't wanna miss this. This is important and special. So first, I just wanna say thank you. Thank you to Whitney for just being you and having your vision and being the amazing, warm, caring, and brilliant person that you are, to be able to insert this in this space and bring this conversation to this conference. That is a very bold move, and it's one that should not go unremarked, and I appreciate you. And I also wanna say thank you to my fellow panelists some of you are meeting right now, and some of you haven't met me before. Crystal and I have met before from way back in the four days. And I just want to say thank you for allowing me to be here. And thank you for being here with me as well. It really does mean a lot. Um, and I don't say that, I don't say that lightly. I say that seriously. I appreciate you. Um, and I appreciate you sharing the space with me. So as you can see from the program, my name is Kristen Smith and I am the founder of Sight Black Women, a campaign that formally started in 2017 to bring awareness to the structural, gendered, racial discrimination that black women face in the culture of academic and non-academic publishing. And here I use the word publishing broadly, not just to refer to formal books and articles, but also media publications, representations, artwork, and the circulation of ideas in the broader public. <clears throat> in other words, the act of putting ideas out into the world and claiming credit for them. I was inspired to start this campaign out of my own experiences with erasure, with, which I will talk about in a little bit. But before I do that, I want to just give you a brief overview of what I want to share with you today. I did not prepare a formal research paper, but I did prepare some brief thoughts that I'm entitling Reflections on the Imperative of Citing Black Women. I promise to be brief, like I said, and remain to the time slot. Yeah, I'm gonna do that. Um, and the main points that I would like to leave with you today are the following. I think they're simple, albeit potentially radical. The first, that the, dis, the, excuse me, the dissociation of black women as authors from our ideas is a structural misogynistic, and that's quoting Moya Bailey and Trudy, form of domestic violence in the academy. The epistemological erasure, this is two, the epistemological erasure of black women's authorship is what has historically legitimated and continues to legitimate knowledge in the academy. And then three, that citing black women cannot just be about adding the titles of black women's work to your syllabi and bibliographies. It must be a structural reconfiguring of how we think about knowledge. In other words, it requires an epistemic shift. So the first point, citational erasure as misogynistic domestic violence. <coughs> to begin, let me go back to the story of cite black women. 
I'm an anthropologist who studies the gendered racial, dimension, racial dimensions of anti-Black state violence, specifically police violence. I've published a book on this topic, Afro-Paradise, Blackness, Violence, and Performance in Brazil. I've also published academic and public articles as well. In 2017, I attended a conference where a scholar paraphrased portions of my book, most likely using the computer thesaurus and plugging their own information in, into it for my, their own information in, in it to replace my location-specific data and did not cite me or give me any credit for my work. Now it's possible that this was some gross oversight or misunderstanding. Maybe the person did not truly understand proper citational etiquette, or maybe they were following the British model of assuming that everyone knows that the author, who the author is and therefore the work doesn't need to be cited. <laughs> but most likely this was an intentional erasure. When I saw the words that I had painstakingly labored over projected onto the screen with no reference to or acknowledgement of the birthing process I went through to produce them. And as a note, I used to wake up at three o'clock every morning for the year after my youngest son was born to write my book. I was devastated and livid. I was deeply hurt by the brazen disregard for me and my work but I was also incensed at the fact that there was really nothing I could do or say about it that would not be damaging to my academic career. In other words, I couldn't interrupt the person's presentation and call them out without the risk of painting myself as a hysterical black woman with a grudge. So I sat there, writhing inside, until I couldn't take it anymore, and I walked out and called my best friend. <laughs> Like any good friend, she listened to me loving, lovingly as I let off all the steam I had built up in that session. And as I cursed, because I did curse, I told her, the next time I go to a conference, I'm going to make a shirt that says, Cite Black Women, period. And that was when Cite Black Women was born. In November 2017, I made the first Cite Black Women t-shirts and sold them at the National Women's Studies Association meeting in Baltimore. The t-shirts have never been a have never have never been and continue not to be a personal profit-making venture. I donate all of the proceeds to the Winnie Mandela School, which is a school that I've been working with um, since its founding in 2010, and it's for the organization that I've been working with since 2005. At NWSA, I sold out of those shirts in one day and got lots of requests to make more. And I didn't expect that, just so, just so clear. I just, I, I did it for, I just did it because I wanted to do it. I didn't think that everybody was going to want to do it. Um, and so I made another batch for the American Anthropological Association meet, meeting in DC that year. And I was struck by the moving way that my colleagues received the shirts. Lynn Bowles, one of our elders in black anthropology, cried when I gave her one. And I think it's important to note that she is the first scholar, to, to my knowledge, to specifically write about the exclusion of black women from citations in anthropology, right? And she's been studying that since the 1990s. My fellow black anthropologists encouraged me to, encouraged me to expand the project. Later in December 2017, I launched Black Women on Twitter, site Black Women on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And in November 2018, we launched the site Black Women Collective, our website, and our podcast. So if you don't listen to us, please do. There is an irony that underpins the that underpins the birth of site Black Women, however. Part of the reason I turned to making shirts is the endemic 
appropriation of black women's work in the academy and the culture of silence that buttresses it as a social practice. People take our words and our ideas, paraphrase them, appropriate them, and even quote them word for word and don't cite us. Yet this culture is somewhat hidden, deep-seated, and shrouded by a kind of academic domestic violence. We are severely punished by our colleagues, particularly male colleagues, for speaking out against the routine violations we experience within our academic households. We are gaslighted, blackballed, ridiculed, slandered, and at times even verbally or physically assaulted. There is a misogynistic culture of silence that exists as a disciplining mechanism within the academy that functions to keep us quiet and in our place. And much like the relationship between symbolic violence and domestic violence in the home sphere, it operates according to racialized and gendered patriarchal logics of paternalistic abuse. I know exactly who my violator is, yet I am forced to pretend nothing ever happened in order to maintain the guise of academic respectability. Part two, the epistemological erasure of black women's authorship is what legitimates knowledge in the academy. One of the incredible contributions of Patricia Hill Collins's Black Feminist Thought is her reflection on black feminist epistemology. She writes, and I quote, because elite white men control Western structures of knowledge validation, their interests pervade the themes, paradigms, and epistemologies of traditional scholarship. As a result, US black women's experiences, as well as those of, black, of, of women of African descent transnationally, have been routinely distorted within or excluded from what counts as knowledge. She goes on to note that the pro that processes of knowledge validation in the academy, both in the US and transnationally, have followed a white male epistemology. In other words, white men have determined whose knowledge matters and on what terms, and what knowledge gets linked to power in what ways. This process, Collins notes, has been intimately tied to citation. Citation in the academy is nothing more than credentialing, a way of validating our, our claims by framing framing them, excuse me, within the context of the previous work of others. Choosing who to cite then is an epistemological choice, a question of knowledge inseparably tied to power. Collins goes on to write, quote, two political criteria influence knowledge validation processes. First, knowledge claims are evaluated by a group of experts whose members bring with them a host of sedimented experiences that reflect their group location and intersecting impressions. Second, each community of experts must maintain its credibility as defined by the larger population in which it is situated from, in which it is situated from which it draws basic taken for granted knowledge. She goes on to say, when elite white men or any of their overly homogenous group dominates knowledge validation processes, both of these political criteria can work to suppress black feminist thought. What Collins noted almost 30 years ago is at the heart of our discussion today. It is not just that black women are unwillfully or willfully ignored in citational practices in the academy, but that, but that the academy itself has been built on an epistemology that necessarily excludes black women's knowledge from the realm of validity. We cannot possibly be cited because we cannot possibly have said anything that is valid. Thus, if we have an idea that seems important, it cannot, according to white male academic epistemological knowledge structures, be our own. Three, this is the last part. 
Because of the epistemic nature of the devalidation of Black women's knowledge in the academy, citing Black women can't just be about adding Black women to our syllabus and your, or adding Black women to your bibliography. Citing Black women requires that we fundamentally change how we think about knowledge and knowledge production, requiring us to disrupt the white male epistemology that Collins told us about. So I'm actually gonna end it there because I think that's a provocation and I look forward to discussing this more with you in Q&A. Thank you. Okay, um, well, thank you so much, Krista, for your work, for starting us off. Um, I still need my t-shirt, so we can coordinate. Um, so I also want to really thank Whitney for organizing this, bringing us together. Um, I'm, I'm really honored to be on the panel. Um, I want to acknowledge those of you in the room as well, those of you who identify as black women and those of you who don't. Uh, it is standing room only. They should have put us in a bigger room, but um, I think it matters that so many of you are here today. Um, I'd like to do something a little unconventional. Probably not going to surprise you because I'm me. Um, I'd like everyone who feels comfortable doing so, who identifies as a black woman, to stand up. So for those of you standing, if no one has told you today, or maybe ever, let me tell you that your work is important, your work matters, your work is necessary, and even more than your work, you are necessary. We need you. We need your survival. We need your community. We need your knowledge. We need you alive and thriving. Those of you who are still seated, I'd like you to literally applaud all of the women standing Everything that they have overcome are overcoming. Let us recognize what it takes to be a black woman in this world and produce knowledge, whether it's in or outside of the academy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm shook. I'm shook myself. I'm shook. <laughs> um, I have to be honest because for a while I was wondering how and why I was asked to be in this panel. I was like, okay, is it because for a while when I used to be active on Twitter, I would tweet every now and then, have you cited a black woman today? Um, a funny anecdote about that. So this was a few years ago that I, that I was doing that somewhat regularly. And then someone brought to my attention, another black woman, she sent me a DM. She was like, uh, you might want to know about this. One of my followers, who's, who's not a black woman, it's a man, I don't know his racial or ethnic uh, identity, but he had started to take that phrase, have you cited a black woman today? He put it on a poster on Etsy and started selling it without citing me. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this shit up, right? It's like, wow, wow, okay. Uh, but I figured that's probably not why I'm on the panel. Um, <laughs> And then I thought, well, maybe it's because in my recent work and um, How to Be Less Stupid About Race, there's a chapter called Listen to Black Women. 
Um, and in that chapter, I explore not only the central importance of, of black feminist thought and black women's knowledge more broadly, but I also retrace my own path to understanding the value of black women's knowledge as a black woman, uh, not just socialized in a white supremacist society, white male supremacist society, but also professionalized in uh, a context and in a discipline that, as you've heard from Kristen, as you all probably know, uh, systematically silences and, and erases black women. And so uh, as I've gone across the country talking about the book, one of the things I tell audiences uh, and I tell my students this too, is that, you know, I know I'm a black woman, I often talk about black women's knowledge and all that, but I quite obviously was not born, you know, with a black power fist uh, quoting Angela Davis. Um, also, because you can't get out of the womb like that. Uh, I tried and uh, go back in and come out the right way. Um, but so I think it's important, though, for those of us who do want to insist upon the, the importance and centrality of black women and, and girls' knowledge, that we uh, be honest about our path to knowing that. Um, because I think that it's from that place of, of epistemological honesty that we can, um, I think, most convincingly uh, do this work. I also want to begin by saying that I do not read or cite enough black women. I don't, and even though I've been reading more and citing more than ever before, um, I don't think that any of us can read or cite enough black women. Uh, and I think we sort of should begin with that assumption that we're not doing enough because it's ongoing. Um, and I won't say too much about it because I write about it in some detail uh, in How to Be Less Stupid About Race, but certainly, like, uh, anyone who pays attention in graduate school, I saw, right, how black women were being excluded, um, and sometimes included in exclusionary ways, um, mentioned in order to undermine. We'll, we'll mention black feminist thought to say that we shouldn't do black feminist thought, right? That was my professionalization, and I did not come to really, you know, realize this until I finished the PhD. I can't even imagine Right, if I had come to really <laughs> come to terms with how you know, sort of uh, epistemologically oppressed I was when I was in graduate school, um, I had you know anyway. Um, so I, I want to begin with you know that context. So I do speak as someone who's still very much in the work of of unlearning uh, uh, some of the oppressive modes of knowledge production into which I was trained. I also want to say that I have to be honest, I, one of the things we were asked to think about in the panel is, you know, what do we think about the canon? Who's in the canon of black women sociologists? Um, and I don't really believe in a rigid notion of a canon. Uh, as a black woman, I'm just, you know, uh, skeptical about the notion. But if we are going to think about uh, constructing a canon of black women sociologists, I have to be honest and say, I think I'd have to start with my mother. Um, in How to Be Less Stupid About Race, I write a lot about how my mom didn't talk about race or racism or sexism or politics at all, really, when I was a kid. Uh, but she did talk about so many other things that shaped my sociological imagination. And certainly, as I grew up and began to study these issues, she, well, she talks all the time now about racism and white supremacy and so on. Um, but most importantly, she taught me about my inalienable worthiness the value and sanctity of my life, and the mystical power of God's love and presence in my life. And that's usually something I don't talk about at ASA, but I have to be honest, that's part of my 
sociological canon. Uh, and she did such a good job that when I grew up and came out as bisexual and queer, and my mom found herself in the grips of the socially inherited homophobia, I was so convinced of my worth that I was able to weather the storm of her temporary but agonizing intolerance until she eventually came around and became a proud LGBT mama. <laughs> my mom's commitment to self-discovery, reflection, and growth was my first encounter re with reflexivity, with true reflexivity. Um, so that's certainly part of my sociological canon. But I think more broadly, you know, I have to think about my community, my ancestors, my mitochondrial DNA as part of my canon. And I think it does behoove us to think very broadly about the critical insights of black women who are not in the academy. Uh, yesterday I was on a panel with Marcus Anthony Hunter in, in which he referred to a group of sociologists otherwise known as in vogue, <laughs> which I loved, I loved. Um, you know, there's so many black women thinkers and creators and knowledge producers outside of the academy that we need to bring into our sociological conversations. And this was precisely the intellectual agenda charted by Patricia Hill Collins, centering black women, ordinary black women, working class and poor black women, marginalized black women, to deepen and expand our sociological imaginations. Kristen told us much about the epistemological practices that exclude black women and girls from being viewed as valid knowledge producers. And I just want to add that these dynamics take on a dimension uh, in the digital age that's almost unthinkable uh, when we think about the uh, concentrated hegemony of white male thought and control over information. But we live in a world where quite literally three white men control the flow of global information, right? The owners of Google and Facebook. Um, so thinking about what these dynamics of citation, knowledge production, information flows look like right now, I mean, it's, it's a lot. Um, so speaking of Patricia Hill Collins, obviously, if we're going to think about a canon, she's in it because she helped construct it. But there are many other names we might think of, some of them sociologists, many of them not. Um, but sociologists, Anna Julia Cooper, Ida B. Wells Barnett, uh, Joyce Latner, Cheryl Townsend Gilkes, Karen and Barbara Fields. Uh, Judith Rollins, uh, more recently, Zini Magubani, uh, Beyond Sociology Per Se, Sojourner Truth, Ella Baker, Angela Davis, the Combahee River Collective, Kimberly Crenshaw, Octavia Butler, Sandra Bland, Patrice Coulors, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, and there's so many black women theorists and thinkers contributing to the field of black studies that we might consider essential in expanding the sociological imagination. Sylvia Winter, Saidia Hartman, and more recently, Christina Sharp and Simone Brown. I also think it's essential for sociologists to read the works of black women historians, such as Paula Giddens, Sword Among Lions is essential. Sarah Haley, more recently, her work on black women in labor. Danielle McGuire, At the Dark End of the Street. Carol Boyce Davies, Left of Marx, the biography of Claudia Jones. We might also consider Nina Simone, Billie Holiday, Tony, Adrian Piper, the philosopher and contemporary artist. We were also asked to think about the question of supporting black women. So just a few closing reflections on this. Maybe it's too obvious to say it, but I want to sort of point out that if we don't support black women in our intellectual production, we won't have work to cite. We won't have enough work to cite. And sister outsider Audre Lorde teaches us about the relationship between support and speaking or writing our work into existence. I was going to die, she tells us, if not sooner than later, whether or not I had ever spoken myself. 
My silences had not protected me. Your silence will not protect you. But for every real word spoken, for every attempt I had ever made to speak those truths for which I am still seeking, I had made contact with other women while we examined the words to fit a world in which we all believed, bridging our differences. And it was the concern and caring of all those women which gave me the strength and enabled me to scrutinize the essentials of my living. If we don't support black women, if black women are dying too young because of a system designed to kill us prematurely, if black women are being failed by an academy that refuses to create contexts of care that allow for us to thrive, then we won't have enough work to cite. On a very practical level, um, I can say with certainty that neither one of my books would exist if I had not been supported, nurtured, funded, cared for, and rescued again and again. It's still mind-blowing to me when people come up and they tell me, oh, I'm citing or teaching your book, um, especially Resurrecting Slavery, my first book, because I didn't want to write it. I did not want to write it. Um, if one of my mentors, uh, and I'm going to call her out, in my remarks I had labeled her a senior black woman, uh, senior in terms of rank, not age, huh? but I'm going to call her out because she's here, uh, Vilna Bashi Treitler. If Vilna had not driven, and I've talked about this before, but if she had not driven across state lines early on a Saturday morning, maybe five years ago, I can't remember, a long time ago, I wouldn't have finished my book, Resurrecting Slavery. And the reason she drove over is because I had confided in her that I didn't give a shit about the tenure track no more. Uh, the dissertation was done, but I wasn't, it was too much work to revise it. I felt overwhelmed. I thought I had to do all this much more analysis. And she metaphorically bitch slapped me. I'm no, 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 I'm not supposed to say it. But you know, she was like, "Bitch, you writing this goddamn book?" And she, she didn't say that. She didn't say that. She's too sweet to say that. Um, but she went over. My, she said that. Um, <laughs> the book got done. The book got done. Um, <laughs> Um, and, you know, for my second book, too, it, there was a whole group of women, and not only women, but I want to focus on them, because especially women, who believed in me enough to encourage me while I was still junior to embark upon something that felt very risky, which was to write for the public. So once again, I was rescued, this time by the organizers of the Creative Connections Retreat, which at the time was convened by Tanya Golash-Boza, Zulema Valdez, France Windance Twine out in Yellowstone National Park. It was amazing. I was with this cohort of just brilliant uh, black and brown women, Antonia. Um, <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and they nurtured that dream of writing for the public, a dream that I did not yet believe in. And because of them, that book eventually got done. In closing, I know I'm almost out of time, but I want to say something that it might seem a little contradictory. But I just want to put out there that citing does not always have to be about support. We do need to support black women. Uh, but sometimes citing is about engagement. And sometimes engagement is critical. Um, so I want to sort of think about that, too, that 
you know, I think very often what I fall into, not that it's bad, but I tend to cite the work of black women that I like. <laughs> I'm like, yes, this black woman's brilliant. I agree with her. I'm a citer. Um, but, you know, it so happens that black women are not a monolith, right? And so sometimes critical engagement uh, will mean reading the work of black women or reading an aspect of the work of a black woman who, you know, we respect deeply, but we don't agree with this thing they said. And we want to engage with that. Uh, and that also involves a kind of emotional labor, uh, both in crafting that critique and receiving it. Uh, going back to resurrecting slavery, I was really uh, lucky that uh, I'm pleased to find that lots of the reviews were, were very positive, uh, was positively reviewed in AGS and other venues. But one of the most critical reviews uh, was written by a black woman, and I didn't, don't know her. Um, I, I'd never heard of, of her work, she's not a sociologist. And I have to say that, uh, you know, I, I read the review and it pissed me off. And back then when I was on Twitter, I, I basically said I didn't like the review, you know. And I know that wasn't a good look, by the way. That's why I'm not on Twitter no more. I'm just too petty for Twitter. Um, <laughs> too petty. Uh, but, but it was a learning opportunity also for me to, you know, kind of grapple with how do I graciously accept criticism from another black woman? Right? And, I, and then I also had to wonder, would I have given her more slack if she was a white man? You know, so thinking about the emotional labor of craft, of critical engagement, respectful but critical engagement, uh, giving and receiving that. Um, and then really, really last and closing, praxis. Um, so just a few ideas to throw out and we can maybe have more in the Q&A. Uh, but I think that we want to... We want to think about for ourselves and our teaching and our own ongoing research and reading to, to grapple with the work of a diverse and ever-expanding uh, sort of group and variety of black women. So thinking about which types of black women you are under reading. For example, I just realized that I don't know the work of any trans-identified black woman. In sociology, I mean. So if anyone knows, by the way, holla at me because I want to read and cite their work. But thinking about, you know, are you reading queer, bisexual, lesbian, black women? Are you reading black trans women? Are you reading working class and poor black women? Black women outside of the West? Are you, are you reading the work of disabled black women? And then also the question of ideological diversity. Listen, I'm not saying I want to read Candace Owens, huh? But, <laughs> but thinking about the ideology, the politics of the women, black women that you're citing. And when you find the gaps, commit to filling them. Right? I mean, that's part of my practice. Um, so that's all I got. Thank you. Everybody. Hi, I'm uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom. Really? Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what I owe you, but I'll pay. Um, so I'm always, I, uh, I'll be honest with you, I rewrite my talks as they go on. So I was very happy to be third because I don't like to, I think of these things, we don't have a lot of spaces where we get to get together and have these sorts of meaningful conversations. And so one of the things that I do not like about conferences, I don't like a lot of things about conferences. <laughs> Seriously, this is a, always an emotionally, physically brutal experience for me, and I just want to acknowledge that. I do not like coming, um, but it, it, which is fine. Uh, but because of that, I don't like to waste our time. So when my colleagues have already covered something, I would much rather respond to that so that we have a more generative time together. Um, so I say all that to apologize at the outset to say that means that I just wrote this down as everybody was talking for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> 
I had a sort of different conversation about epistemology, the same thing, about who I thought should uh, be in the canon and how uncomfortable, I'm like, Crystal, how uncomfortable I am with the very idea. I'm working with a graduate student right now, actually, who's talking about black feminist canonical thinking and the whether or not it's actually even a feminist practice to have a canon, especially in digital spaces and what archives mean and all that. So I've been thinking about that a lot lately, about whether or not that should even be our goal, whether being like the white men of ASA should even be, um, you know, one of our uh, ideals that we hold, and I don't think so. So instead, I'm going to talk about something that I maybe I'm calling now. I've got two titles. You can choose which one you like. Uh, where did you get that from? <laughs> or we can go with new media's new people, same problems. Either of these. And I'm going to uh, start with a couple of things to locate myself, first of all. So um, I didn't take my first sociology class until I got to graduate school. That is because I went to a historically black college. We were sociology. We didn't have a sociology program. I went to North Carolina Central University. And I've reflected on this actually quite a bit about why I had not taken a sociology course. Um, it is because our institutions came out of a particular uh, lineage and history and context which said that sociology was embedded in social theory, especially were literally embedded in every course I took, right? I watched Sankofa in math class, right? Seriously, that's where we saw it. I, uh, I first read Patricia Hill Collins, I think, in English class, right? So sociology was not something that one did in my experience. Sociology was something about how you just engage with the world. It was not cordoned off in the sort of disciplinary um, perspective. Um, so I go to graduate school at Emory University, which I maintain still is the whitest place I've ever been in my life. And it is in the middle of what they like to pretend is Atlanta. And when I say white, no, because it's a whole thing, for those of you who know, yeah, they stole the zip code because they want to be Atlanta, but don't want to be in black Atlanta as a thing. So in your mind, you know, they've got this white marble all over campus. It was quite literally physically the whitest place I had ever been. I'm, I, that's what I meant. I mean, the buildings look like they have been built with the cotton and slave money because they have been, right? And it was almost as if they wanted you to walk around with this sort of foreboding sense that you had entered into a physically white space. Um, and so that's where I came to professional sociology, if that matters. In my department, they had not tenured a black woman since Dolores Aldridge um, uh, and until uh, a couple weeks ago when they did yeah. Abigail. Yeah, so congratulations to Abigail. But that, just so you know what that means for Abigail to have been tenured there at Emory University. I did not exist then in a space in professional sociology during my professionalization um, into the academy. And so conferences became one of the ways that I engaged with the idea of what that was supposed to mean professionally. And the very first thing I learned at my very first ASA is that there is not one conference if you are a black woman sociologist, right? Depending on how you want to do it, there are at least three. Right? Each of them sort of reflecting some dimension of our intersectional identities and intersectional practices. So even this, uh, this uh, conference for me, that is ASA, ABS, and I switch out SWS and SSSP, depending on how my money and my time is going. <laughs> right? That means there is not, so my, to my first point being, there is not an actual physical space in the work prom of our profession where a black woman sociologist can be a black woman sociologist in totality, right? We go to ABS, which I actually think is a whole other conversation we could have about how much that had historically felt to me like the black church, mm -hmm. that space, which I think everything inherent in that, and that there's tons of black women labor, but not necessarily as much attention to black women's knowledge production. Or I could go be a woman at SWS where nobody wanted to talk about being black. Um, 
or talk about class, or I could come to ASA and talk all I wanted about class, maybe a little bit about race, but not about being a black woman. That's my experience of the profession. So one of the first things that I am very excited about and challenged by is where can black women sociologists actually physically exist? Mm -hmm. To my understanding, we don't have that place just yet. Which brings me to my second point. So one of the things that we have done as, I think, an act of resistance and survival for some of those, that was certainly my point of entree into um, writing for publics or thinking about a public, certainly in being online and in online spaces very early in my graduate career. It is because I was on a physical white campus where no black woman had any power to protect me or to guide me or to introduce me into the profession. I was expected to embody a black woman sociologist for the undergraduate students because the faculty wouldn't teach them. All of our race classes were being taught by graduate students. Because our faculty wouldn't teach them. I had no point of entree into the profession, so I turned to a Publix to try to find connection and a network uh, for black uh, feminist uh, intellectual production and knowledge production. And here's what we find in these spaces. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things about what that site of resistance looks like and feels like for black women who I think are disproportionately inclined to participate in those spaces because our physical spaces are so hostile. That looks like a different level and scale of hostility, a different level of risk in doing that type of public interrogation of our knowledge production. And it looks like not owning our knowledge production to Crystal's earlier point, actually to everybody in Kristen's earlier point. We produce these things, but do not produce the platforms within which we um, produce them. And that brings me to something that happened to me back at that very first ASA. I was giving a paper on higher education, which is, you know, really what my thing is, apparently. And, you know, I said a couple of things that apparently might all, because that's what social vet is, it's all white dudes for the most part. And they come in and they found me interesting. Right. And so they're confused. And so there's this long line to meet me after. And this first question asked of me was, you know, you said this thing about like stratification and institutional heterogeneity, where'd you get that from? That's why I just wanted to say, there you go, see, where'd you get that from? Uh, and I didn't understand. I said it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, that wasn't really in Like I thought it, like I read it from I thought it. And he asked me again. And then the person, another white man behind him thinking, I'm confused, jumps on to help him, help me understand that what they meant was how had I gotten something that they found of intellectual value? That was the question, right? So we understand in the profession, black women as a few things. We bear children, we can bear problems, we can bear culture, but we can never bear knowledge. If it was important enough to know, white men would already know it. Right? And this is sort of our formal challenge to the profession. And when we then try to enter into these other spaces to build networks, to try to push back against that, we just end up adopting an additional set of sort of prestige hierarchies, ones that we don't always understand in the way that we at least understand how ASA works. Right? But do we really understand how our knowledge production works on something like Wikipedia? Eric Olin Wright, right, starts uh, the uh, Real Utopias Wikipedia project a few years ago when he was president um, and has this idea that the public commons of knowledge that Wikipedia promises, right, can be this way into the class utopia that a lot of us sociologists are very interested uh, in theorizing and observing. And I'd like to give you a little bit from uh, Jimmy Wales, who is the uh, founder, uh, co-founder of Wikipedia, about what he believes 
is the purpose of Wikipedia in establishing expertise and knowledge base for the public. That he understands Wikipedia, he says, as a general purpose encyclopedia. It's a collection of synthesized knowledge presented from a neutral point of view. To whatever extent possible, encyclopedic writing should steer clear of taking any particular stance other than the stance of the neutral point of view. He said, perhaps the easiest way to make your writing more encyclopedic is to write about what people believe rather than what is so. If this strikes you as somehow collectivist or imperialist, then ask me about it because I think that you are just mistaken. What people believe is a matter of objective fact, and we can present that quite easily from the neutral point of view. That's why they don't allow any original research to be your uh, claim to fame or why you are notable on Wikipedia. And I'm taking some of this from Julia Adams, in the interest of citation, Hannah Bruckner and Cambria Noslin's article, Who Counts as a Notable Sociologist on Wikipedia? You are probably not surprised to find that to be notable uh, on Wikipedia means for other white men to know who you are. Um, that's why I don't care about Wikipedia. And when we start thinking about this as some sort of radical praxis, why I generally don't participate in it. Um, but at least we know the rules of academic publishing and gatekeeping. We don't even know the rules of something like Wikipedia, for which here I'm using as a stand-in for all the digital new media forms that are often presented to us as these radical forms of praxis and resistance to what is happening to us in the academy. In fact, I would probably argue that we've got new medias, but again, the same old problems, often more submerged because of the way Way that the uh, economics of the platforms work. So at least we know who we're pushing back against in ASA. I don't think we know out there in the wide, wild world of publics uh, who we're pushing back against, which makes it to me even more critical for us to think about some of the questions that my colleagues have posed for us to consider. Who are we reading? But not only who are we reading, but who are we engaging with intellectually, to Crystal's point, which is not necessarily the same thing. I suspect that we all read more black women that we engage, than we engage with, right? Part of that because we have not revisited the idea of what respectful engagement with each other's ideas look like, right? There is a level at which we can kind of get stuck into promotion because that is so important, especially in the neoliberal academy, and not move into critical engagement, which to my mind is how you build sustainable knowledge production. It is not just what you have read, but what you have engaged. And while that can certainly happen through citation practices, and I really hope we revisit that issue in Q&A, I think that it comes up in who we align ourselves with, who we consider as members of the profession. So I am very... Um, very much ambivalent about whether or not I even want my main identity to be a professional sociologist. Mm -hmm. uh, like many of you, I'm sure when I'm on campus, I'm much more likely to talk to the black women who clean my office um, than the white dudes down the hall. One, they're more interesting, and I'm not even saying that funny. They really are more interesting. <laughs> uh, I got a lot of Toni Morrison on my mind lately. She talks about just how boring white men are. And I was like, I feel that so deeply in my spirit. Uh, but to identify, to identify across not just you know disciplinary boundaries, professional boundaries, I'm really fundamentally interested in um, class-based uh, relationships with black women 
women who exist in our profession, even though they may not exist in sociology. So when we talk about the ethic of care, for example, there are plenty of black women caring for us who are not sociologists. They're the ones who clean up after us. They're the ones who help us take care of our black students when we are too busy to do so. They're the ones who make sure there's a little extra food left over in the break room for us. There is an ethic of care happening. It just is not always happening in our professional, what we think of as our profession. And I think that is about us pushing the boundaries of who we consider as members of our profession, which I would point out black women scholars and thinkers are extremely good at doing. Right. I think that I think we have uh, more than enough history to show us how that is done. It does require re-remembering it from time to time. And so I'll end uh, with a couple of thoughts that I am borrowing from Adia Harvey Wingfield, who recently had a piece um, on the SWS blog, I think, about how sociology silences black women. Uh, and I strongly recommend everybody read it. But one of the things that uh, Adia has uh, modeled, I think, for black uh, women sociologists is this idea of reimagining who is part of the profession and how hard she worked as president, for example, of SWS to bring in members of the community as members of the profession and to treat them as intellectual equals, even as that made, I think, all the members of SWS uh, very uncomfortable. But I really like that model. I like the model of our panels, including members of the, communi the community, when we are in ASA or whatever I respect the professional organizations are. I also really like the model of us constantly being critical of the spaces, even as we are trying to use them to build careers that will allow us to live high quality lives, which is what I want for all black women, including those who will never be professional black women sociologists. All right, so I'll end there. Thanks, everybody. I hope I can do our panel justice, and it is great to be here. Um, and I so appreciate everything you have all said, including the complications of even being here at ASA. For those of you that follow me on Twitter, I'm not big on Twitter, but yesterday I was so annoyed at ASA. I was like, $300? ABS, we get a meal, <laughs> we get a party, pens, SWS, you get meals, community, I'm like, what is ASA for? But it's, all, it's for interventions. Like, that's how I think of it at this point. When I'm at ASA, it's for doing interventions like this. Um, so, I am Zakia Luna, co-editor of Whitney Pirtle of the Black Feminist Sociology Edited Volume. Look, the Twitter follow's working. Yay! I learned this from young people at a conference. That's the only reason I ever got on Twitter. So I <laughs> shout out to the young RJ activists um, uh, showing me some of the cool things you can do with technology. Okay, I don't want to distract us too much. Um, so uh, Whitney invited me. I was like, oh, of course I'll be on a panel with all these folks. And also Whitney, I'm like, sure, whatever you want me to do, Whitney, I will do that. Um, there's a few people in my life for whom I will do that, and Whitney is one of them. And it's been um, so much fun to work on this Black Feminist Sociology edited volume with her. And I said, you know, my remarks would be around sort of how that came to be in relation to these questions. And just to give a bit of story around it, um, because I'm a sociologist, and of course we have to do context, right? So it started last ASA, but really it started in some ways the year before. Um, I didn't go to ASA in Montreal. Um, my mom died earlier that year, and I was like, 
what am I interested in doing? And I was like, there was only a couple things I was interested um, in doing. Uh, my honor students were graduating, so I was like, I will go to their ceremony. They've worked hard throughout the year. I let the students whose committees I was on know, like, hey, if you want to meet with me, and you know, the day before the honors thing, other than that, I honestly don't know what's going to happen. We're planning a celebration of life thing. Um, and I was like, I'm not going to ASA. Like, why am I going to go to ASA, you know? I went to my Woodrow Wilson thing. That was the one thing I did. Um, and then just like took it easy most of the year. And I, met, I said no to pretty much everything. I had an auto reply. I yeah, spent time back east. Uh, pretty much said no to everything, including people in my department were like, hey, you want to be included in X volume? Nope. No. Um, the one person I didn't say no to immediately was Adia. She said, any chance you want to be on the SWS panel? Uh, Tressie, and I was like, that sounds like a yes. Yeah, through the fog, yes, it's a yes, okay. Um, but other than that, I mean, and that's a big deal, even though I was technically on sabbatical as well, but it's a big deal because of the visibility of black women, but also like the sort of imperatives of academia to continue to be involved with things, to say yes to every publishing opportunity, all of it, right, when you're on the tenure track. Um, so I was like, okay, but I'm going to go to ASA Philadelphia. And I'm like, wow, like, I've really been out of things for a while. And I had a conversation with a colleague that was helpful, but also there were some aspects of it that just reminded me, um, yes, I'm at Santa Barbara. There's great things about the department, but no department is perfect, y'all. Like, let's be clear. <laughs> like, and I just thought, you know, I just need to get back out there and rebuild community, reconnect with other community, say yes to other things. And um, I went to ABS, and it was the first time I'd gone to ABS in quite a while. New Black Sociologist was the theme. They had come out with the edited volume. I was like, this is great. I ran into Orly, and they were coming up with an edited volume about graduate students, black students in the academy. And I was like, everyone is doing their thing. <laughs> like, what about the Black Feminist Sociology? And I'm like, well, I've read the Black Feminist Anthro one that Irma McLaurin did decades ago on this podcast. And I was like, there is something out there, right? And I'm like, there has to be. I mean, Pahad Hill Collins has been head of ASA. I mean, people are citing some work left, right, and center. People in movements area where I was at were paying attention to Black movements in a real way not just like civil rights movement as a model, but we're like, okay, Black Lives Matter happened and there weren't really theoretical tools to deal with it for various reasons. So there was all this stuff happening and there was a yams dinner uh, that a friend told me about. Yams is uh, Sisters of the Yam, Black Women on the Tenure Track in Sociology. It's a Facebook group. I'm not on Facebook much, but I was like, Whitney's organizing a dinner. I'm like, can I come? And she's like, yeah. And then I was at the dinner and I said, what do you all think about like doing a volume? And Whitney was one of the folks who was like, yeah, no, that sounds really good. And like followed up, right? And it was also, you know, the shirts were happening and I hadn't got mine in time, but there was all this energy. And Marcus Anthony Hunter, as part of his work with ABS, had built a relationship with Rutledge, like an intentional relationship with the press. And when I went to him and was like, we were talking about this at dinner, and he was like, 
Sounds cool. Yeah, if you email me later, um, I will work on facilitating that. So like also like acknowledging the importance of other people in building relationships and connections, right? And he followed through on that and connected us with Jody O'Brien. And we were, Whitney and I hadn't worked together. Now, we knew each other. I knew when she'd been hired at Merced because folks were like, do you know Whitney? And I'm like, I do in a way because black women in Soch, like there's very few. So like two degrees of separation maybe. But we had never really worked together. And so we were building our relationship and talking about sort of like, well, what would this look like? And figuring out drafting proposal, like book proposal, as we're like emailing with Jody O'Brien, who was Marcus's co-editor for the Sociology Rewired series, as we're trying to make this meeting with Dean, the sort of head, the social science head. So all these things are sort of happening. And in two weeks, I feel like it was two weeks, two weeks, we decided to separately draft proposals see what it would look like and come together. And it really flowed. I mean, it was really amazing for us never having worked together, never written together. Yes, we had different approaches, but the ideas really gelled and that's really exciting. Um, that doesn't always happen. And we continued on from there, but we were also wanting to be really intentional um, while understanding we had tenure pressures. And there's all sorts of approach ways to do edited volumes, right? Um, I mean, you have, <laughs> Ruha has one. All sorts of people here, right, have edited volumes, but we were like, well, what would it also look like for us? To be clear, we had conversations about this. We had to negotiate around this and think about, like, what would it look like to have a volume that in the process of producing it felt to us like a black feminist practice, right? And that means taking time. Um, and for those of you who have read the piece, like, you know, Habits of White Supremacy, one of the habits of white supremacy is like everything's got to happen now. It's got to look a certain way. It's got to be only a certain set of people. And it's part of that slowing down process, right? And thinking about we're not just trying to produce a volume of scholarship, but we're trying to produce something that we can write about what the process was like, right, for other people to have a potential model, right? And we, but we're also dealing with a press, and Rutledge is not a nonprofit press. <laughs> so we also had to think about um, that, right, and what that would mean. And they were excited, like from the beginning, which was also just amazing. Um, and they published Pat Hill Collins' second edition, and there's a third edition, there's a fourth edition coming out next year. Yeah. And but they weren't just excited around like, oh, this will be a seller, but they were like excited about us and the work and the scholarship that's out there. And that was a really different feeling and being like, we know there's so much out there that we only get a small slice of. And with this, like you'll get to more and more people, right? Like we will get more exposure as well as a press to, and other people will be like, Rutledge is a space for us potentially, right? And so that was also important for us and part of the intentionality, though, was we like, you know, we know edited volumes sometimes don't come together, right? So we were like, we needed a way to also ensure for people that like, yeah, this is really happening. And we came up with a list of everyone we would want possibly include. And then it was like a list of 50 people. We're like, we including on this panel, and we were like, okay, we can't, <laughs> we can't just have everybody. And so we said, you know, we're going to like, 
have some legacy invites of folks who were more senior in the field, right? Um, who hadn't necessarily been in recent volume, like new black sociologists had just come out. Um, Presumed Incompetent was like on a second edition and we were like, it wasn't that they couldn't submit, but we thought as far as having the people who were gonna already be committed to it, we wanted, um, perfect, a, um, a small group that would you know appeal to some folks, right? And we're like, well, well, yes, we'll see what Pat Hill Collins thinks about you know putting her remarks from ABS. They were very stirring remarks. You can find them on the ABS webpage. <laughs> um, the live stream is still there from last year. Uh, and also, though, recognizing that there's other you know black feminist sociologists that people don't necessarily know the names of to the degree that they know Pat Hill Collins, right? And so we're like. Yeah, like Rose Brewer, right? Um, many people do know her, but there's also plenty who don't know her, right? And you know, in '89, she wrote a piece about feminist sociology and black women, right? And like, we're like, yeah, like let's go back to Rose Brewer um, and some other folks as well, right? And so that was our process, and also just thinking about ahead of time. Uh, I have one of my honor students is here, and you know, I'm big on systems. <laughs> Students like, like maybe on systems, right? Having some orderly way of doing things, um, and we were thinking ahead about what it would look like. We knew there was just going to be so much interest, right? And coming up with like, you know, we had a system that was. Um, we knew we would be. No, we'd know so many people who were submitting. And even before, word started to get around before we put the call out, people were emailing us like, hey, I have this piece. I think it would be perfect for this. And we were like, we have to have a, a system, right? And, you know, we had guiding questions and including and senior colleagues, right? I mean, and it, it's really, but it was like, this is about this other process and having transparency and wanting to have the sort of black feminist community ethic, right, around it. And... So once we tweeted that we got the contract, then things sort of blew up. And <laughs> but we also knew we wanted to involve graduate students. And we also got so many questions. People were like, is this only for black women? And we were like, no, like, it needs to be engaging with black feminist sociology, right? And people would ask us, can I submit this? And we're like, you know, like, submit what you want to submit. <laughs> We're not making decisions beforehand. Submit what you want to submit. Engage with the questions that we put on our very extensive call. And, but it raised a lot of questions for us, right? About, you know, who is included, who's not included. And what does it mean to try to put together a volume that we realize it's the first of its kind. And that's a, I mean, it's mind boggling that <laughs> it's 2000. 18, we're putting together the first black feminist sociology edited collection named as such, right? Again, there's been all sorts of edited volumes, but like that that was that that was that that really like how is this possible, right? And it shows in a way in some ways like our work has been integrated, but also not right. We're still outsiders. It's so outs outsiders within. I'm like, it just feels more like outsider. <laughs> And what it meant um, to continue to engage around these questions when we would get um, emails from folks. And then also in our process, and I'll just briefly, I wanted to, um, you know, we're across two campuses. Um, also, what does it mean? You know, we're both in UCs, right? Like we're on the West Coast, right? There's UCs are highly productive in the sense that there's so many scholars, right? But 
there's also, it's a different feeling, right, on the West Coast around the type of scholarship that's being produced than, say, in the South and being produced in, say, the Northeast, right? And so also, like, engaging with that and being cognizant of that. And we do things by Zoom. And <laughs> an example of the sort of commitment around the students, like, this is one of our meetings. And you can't see Tashel, but that's because we had scheduled a meeting and then it turned out she was getting an award and she's like getting an award and like doing the Zoom and like stepping out. Like that's how committed the students have been to the project. And I think at this point Yasmin was in another country, like nine hours ahead. So like it's been this whole process of also the sort of grounding work, right? Starting with reading Pat Hill Collins, Brewer, talking about what had worked well for us on projects what hadn't, just that sort of basic stuff so that we could build this relationship. Because we thought of it as building a relationship, right? Not just building an edited volume and sort of how important that was in the long term around the sort of mentorship and the experience. And so that was part of the sort of continually keeping our eye on the sort of intentionality around that, right? And as we're talking about citing black women, right? Not just as a throwaway citation, <laughs> But what does it really mean to like engage the work, but also the work of like mentorship, right? What does it mean? Um, and the pay paying folks is also about that, right? Because we know the stats on who has more access to higher education, who can take unpaid things, right? Like that is part of the work of doing the work of ensuring people can stay in the academy, right? When you can, paying students, etc. And also doing things of building community um, beyond citing black women, you know, how can we further support black women in our discipline and the academy um, with the, um, you know, this morning we did a breakfast with um, the authors who could make it, right? who were here and not everyone was here at the conference, but we did that, right? And many of them, you know, they haven't necessarily met each other and Rose Brewer was there and we're like, we finally get to meet Rose Brewer, you know, and the graduate students. And then people also talking about job market stuff and all that. And I think it's really important to think about not just, and I really appreciate Tressie talking about um, the, the sort of ambivalence around, you know, whether or not like your <laughs> identity is like so, sh and I think of it as, you know, like my job is a professor, sure, but my work is in bringing different groups together, right? And creating community and sharing resources, right? That's my work everywhere. And that's sort of what I end up doing. And so that's the type of thing in thinking about continually supporting whether or not you identify as a black woman, what does it mean to give resources to right, black women to organize, right? What does it mean um, if you're a department chair, right, to provide copies of new black sociologists or black feminist soci, you know, uh, in the student library, you know, what does it mean to do that work in other ways? And that's really thinking, you know, and that's putting that work in practice, right? And supporting not just at the junior level, but at the senior level, because the fact is there's so much attrition, right? Let's be clear, like, it's not like once people get tenure, everything is smooth sailing, right? There's a whole other set of things. So what does it mean for those who identify as allies to really be vocal allies in departments so that there continue to be black women to cite in the academy? So I really ask, you know, leave with the question, like, what is your work to do, right, in ensuring that there are continually black women to cite? So thank you. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. Thank you.